Welcome to this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live, the show which ensures that you profit from your time spent here with experts, either through their industry insights and information or simply learning from them. And before I move forward, may I request you to subscribe, follow, like and comment on whichever platform you are watching or listening to this show on. And today we have Miles Wakeham, a contrarian, an investor, a business person, businessman, someone who has lived a life the way he has always wanted. And today he will tell us how to break free and regain your financial freedom and live the way you want to. Welcome to the show, Miles. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Welcome. Welcome to the show. So my straight way to this, you know, the question of financial freedom uh, and to get back your life because so many things in life are linked to financial freedom. You have started many businesses since the age of 17. You have been a millionaire three times, lost it twice for whatever reasons. And then you finally work through them, uh, through whatever corrections that was needed. You are back a multimillionaire with businesses worldwide. And these days you don't work. Your assets work for you. You know, in that backdrop, do tell us, for people who are still striving to make ends meet or but looking towards financial freedom, how to break free and regain their financial freedom. How can they do that? Please share your tips. Well, most people, when, when we think about making money, um, the default position, particularly when you're young, is to sell your time by the hour. Uh, the idea would be you, you do that either independently or you go and get a job you work for an employer and they pay you every month or every couple of weeks or whatever and then what ends up happening is that you you start building up this sort of a world around you which reflects that so all of a sudden the amount of money that you have coming in dictates where you live what sort of car you drive what sort of food you eat what sort of clothes you wear and what happens is a lot of people kind of fall into this trap where they they do what we would call lifestyle inflation they start spending the expected amount of money that they're going to have. And the worst part about that, and this is particularly true in many places in the Western world, is that they will spend money they haven't yet earned by way of taking on debt. And what ends up happening is that in the United States, particularly where I live right now, I'm originally from Australia, but the, the, there's parallels in the economics between both countries, is that people realize that well, I went to college, I went to university, I studied whatever, I came out graduating with this skill. Uh, therefore, for the rest of my life, I'm always going to be able to make this sort of money. There's this assumption that the world never changes uh, as they grow through it. And then what happens is that one day the world does change. They lose their job, they have a divorce, they have a car accident, they have a health-related incident, something that de derails them, takes them off that path. And they find themselves in a situation where they already committed their future income earning to pay for the car they bought, the house they bought, the whatever, you know, whatever debt they incurred. And all of a sudden there's no money. And it's like they were playing musical chairs and they were left without a chair and the music stopped. And that's a day in the life for most people in the Western world. The statistics in the United States show that that methodology doesn't work. Uh, and yet, we live in a world where we're 
indoctrinated to think that it does. We're hypnotized to be fooled to think that it actually does work. Uh, the worst part about it is that magazines like Forbes magazine, very well-respected financial magazine, shows that 78% of Americans live what we would call paycheck to paycheck. And that is that each month that goes by, they have less income coming in than their money going out. Most of which is related to paying for debt and the interest on that debt, whether that be the debt that they incurred to go and get a college education or the debt that they incurred to buy a house or the debt that they incurred to buy a car or, or, or some other, you know, costs, they never get in front of it. And so they become consumed. They don't have choice. They have to go to work every day. They have no choice. And that means that they don't have the ability to think freely as much as they would like. And they don't have the opportunities. Uh, they don't have the ability to seize upon opportunities that are presented to them. Um, what I try to teach is to sort of break that cycle. Yes. Yes. And, and obviously, everybody would want to know how to break that cycle. But before, before that, let me ask you this particular thing. Since, uh, since a long time, uh, you also believe that there has been a system, financial system put in place since the 1950s or before that, you know, after after the Second World War, the system of, you know, putting so much of lives uh, dependent on the banking system and the type of systems that have come after that. And this system has actually, or you can say, puts the puts people in credit or in debt from the very beginning. A student starts, uh, starts his college and that's the time he takes loans and then his whole life, he continues to repay those loans and loses his freedom bit by bit. Everybody thinks they are gaining in life, but actually you start depending or you start spending money that you actually don't have with you. Now, how does your tip help in breaking that chain and giving people their freedom the way they want to? And you also talk about, you know, your financial sustainability model or or methodology that you have developed please share us all that well i think you can probably come down to one simple sentence one simple statement that summarizes most of this the rich don't have jobs so if you start with that train of thought and your choice is to just follow in the footsteps of society maybe your parents your teachers and to go and get a job you won't be rich I mean, it's categorically against the odds that you will ever be rich if you do that. Rich, rich is maybe an aspiration of wealth, but for me, rich is about security. Rich is about making sure that you can cover your costs in the worst possible times and you can handle those adverse events which get thrown at you in your life. Um, I have been through times in my life where I've been rich and then an adverse event wiped me out uh, a couple of times. I eventually worked out that, you know, I had to learn to get around that uh, problem and I, I did work it out. But at the end, the problem is you won't be rich having a job. So if we start from that point, then you can look at the things that you were talking about in regards to the setup. The one thing you start understanding is that the rich in the world generate their money from the assets they own. They generate a, a yield, a dividend from the assets they own. And the easiest way to think about this is say somebody who owns uh, real estate, 
and they rent it out to somebody. So every month the tenant in the property pays them a rent and they receive that income and they don't have to do anything to receive the income. Uh, maybe they have to do a little bit of attending to the property and maintenance and things like that. But for the most part, they're going to make their money without any actual physical exertion. Well, that model works really well, but you have to own a reasonably large amount of real estate to be able to generate enough rent to be able to be sustainable. But then when I looked at this, and, that, and that's kind of the model I follow, but when I looked at this, I also realized, you know, any asset that generates a dividend, that generates rent or generates yield, uh, will pay for you to have the lifestyle you've always wanted. Who is the greatest holders of assets that generate that sort of dividend? Well, it's the banks. What they do is they have a, a, a brilliant system of being able to obtain money, sometimes at zero cost or very minimal cost, and then to lend it out to people to get interest, and interest to them is yield, it's dividend. The more money you have, the more interest you make, and the, the key to uh, their wealth comes from longevity. They want to keep you requiring their money for as long as you possibly can because it extends their dividend yield. So if, for example, in, in the I'll, I'll talk in terms of the, uh, the United States, but an 18-year-old uh, student, decides they want to go to college, that's likely, unless they've got money up front, to be $100,000 US for them to be able to do that over, say, a four-year period. Nine times out of 10, they borrowed that money. So from the age of 18, the, I won't say child, the young adult is begins the process of paying interest to a bank. When they, when they leave the college and they start working, they have to continue to work to pay that interest on that student loan debt. During that time, as they go through what I would call the second quarter of life and they build their life, they build their family, they build their career, they continue to need capital. Just like any business would need capital to build itself from nothing, they need capital to buy a house or to build a family or to establish some sort of a, a home environment. Well, that all comes with borrowed money. And it further extends the banking situation of being able to generate yield for, let's say, another 30 years. And then during that time, life will, will dictate to us that we will have some sort of adverse event. Uh, maybe a parent has to go into a nursing home or you have a car accident or, or whatever. And all of a sudden you wipe yourself out and you've got to start again, but the debt keeps going and it follows with you through the day you die. And the reality is the bankers, if you think about it, from the age of 18 until the age of 65 or even later these days, they've got a, an income stream coming to them every single month that they can rely on, that has government blessing, that has the law on their side. That's exactly how they get rich. And the problem is that we don't see that. We What we do is we just go and work our job and get our paycheck and give half of it to the bank or give more than half of it to the bank. Um, but they're not working. <laughs> and yet you drive around the, any major city in the world and you look at the skyscrapers in the center of the city and all you see on the top of the skyscraper are the names of the banks. They are our citadels. They are our rich. They traverse 
political boundaries. They traverse regional and geographic boundaries. They are worldwide institutions, and they follow this business model and repeat it around the 8 billion people on this planet if they could, from the day they're born to the day they die if they could. And we sit there and we don't see this for what it is. Okay. But can you blame the banking system? Is it's an opportunity uh, in, a, in, a, in a capitalist world or in a free world? And it's, it's any other business. Banks also go bust. People also don't repay many of them. So they have, I'm not talk, taking any sides here, but from a common person's perspective, these things will continue to exist. Banking system will exist in one form or the other. There are so many people who need loans. Sometimes you get cheap loans and which you can, if you can actually utilize it better, you can achieve much more in business, even in other areas of life. But mm -hmm. Miles, coming main focus is that how do you break the chain of getting into a debt or spending too much because see not everybody is like you you could understand bitcoin even though you haven't gone to college and you made huge profit you had that ground level understanding or something you could spot even in other areas you are a real estate investor you have got several properties across in the us and businesses you have built, built. You got that knack. What about a person, I say a person who has just come out of school, about to enter college, and he got to now start his life from there. How does he start? What is your advice for him to start a life which is free, financially free, and along with financial freedom, so many other freedom is, comes along with that. What? How does it take his step from there? Well, firstly, I am not atypical in that the difference between me and most of my peers is that I have the time to be able to see something and study it. And I have the opportunities that are presented from putting myself in situations, which I then have the knowledge from having studied time and study things I've seen to be able to create this kind of a, an analysis, uh, a sensitivity, shall we say, to an opportunity. Everybody on this planet has the sensitivity to opportunity, but very few of us actually unlock it. And the reason why is that we commit ourselves to a job which requires 100% of our focus and 100% of our attention to the needs of our employer. When you're in that situation, you cannot see clearly. And it's not until you break it that you start seeing the things that people like me see. So the earlier you break it, the quicker you see those things. I broke those that, that at the age of 17. So I've had a long time to season this analytical approach to seeing the world. I've traveled the world. I have seen so many things. I buy things in different countries as I see them presented if I feel there is truly an opportunity there. But if I could not participate, if I could not go into that country because I have a job, I can't get time off or whatever, then my life would be nothing more than a predictable uh, event that would be the same as everybody else. And the thing is that what, what made the difference for me is because I didn't take on debt early. 
because I didn't take on debt early. Now, to your point, there is good debt. Don't get me wrong. There is good debt. Yes. But, but, you, but that's not how it's sold. Debt in this world in, the, in 2022 is sold to us as a predatory event. It is not sold to us as a beneficial event. Right. I spent some – this is a very interesting tale. I spent time going to Venice, Italy about five years ago. I went to a corner of Venice called the Caraneggio, often called the Jewish Ghetto. I went to this town square in the Caraneggio that was just empty. There was no one there, some nondescript buildings around it, and I stood in the middle of that town square. Why did I do that? Because that town square is where banking was invented. Now, back in the day when banking was invented, we're talking like the 1100s, 1200s, and so on in Venice, we had a situation where the, the islands of Venice off the coast were some of the wealthiest or becoming the wealthiest parts of economics in the region. They serviced the Mediterranean, you know, Marco Polo, the Silk Road, the history is there. The problem was that the people living in Venice needed to be fed. And all of the food was harvested by farms on the mainland of Italy. And those farmers need to buy seed to sow their crops to be able to harvest and then feed the city of Venice. At the time, the, uh, the Romans that had dominant governance in the region lived a very strict rule of law based on the Christian uh, Bible, particularly the New Testament, which said that you may not lend money to people and charge interest. Their interpretation of, of those um, religious edicts were very, very specific, and they did not allow people to effectively lend money, therefore no one could borrow. But the Jewish people didn't subscribe to the New Testament, and they said that within our laws, we don't believe that applies and we can lend money. And so they managed to get a, an exception to be able to operate what they called a uh, lending businesses that were on the side of Venice, on the banks of Venice, hence the term. And as a result, they were able to lend money to farmers who then grew crops, who then fed the people of Venice. And eventually the Romans understood that this was a necessary evil, right? And then they took it and they, they ran with it and that's how banking took off. Having said that, Banking, for what it's doing, fed the people of, of Venice, and it was a needed thing. Banking allows businesses to grow from an idea into something. Banking allows landlords to buy buildings to rent to people to give them shelter. Banking does wonderful things. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about predatory lending, lending where a bank sees you as nothing more as an income stream and will lend to you not because you have a great idea, not because you have a great purpose, but because you're a, pos you're a node on a network they can extract from. And that is the problem with banking today because people think of banking as all of the beauties of the past and, and, and to create new things. They don't realize that 65% of all students that go to university in the United States do not come out actually practicing what they majored in. They can't, they, you know, you go to college and you get a law degree, 65% of the people who graduate don't become lawyers. They go and end up working at Starbucks or serving pizza. That's the reality. And yet they're stuck with a hundred and something thousand dollars of debt that they can't escape. That's called predatory lending.
If we don't call it out for what it is, we perpetuate this problem. Unfortunately, we perpetuate this problem. Okay, okay. But there is no way for a bank also while lending to know that a person who is going for a law degree will start selling pizza somewhere later, right. later in the day. Right. No, if they did know that, if they were to ask that question and they didn't lend to that person, I'd say, good job, bank. That's that's <laughs> what you should be. That's, that's a moral and ethical position. But banks don't work in the moral yeah, and ethical world. Obviously, <laughs> obviously. Obviously. See, everybody at the end of the day just see whether they will get their money back. And better still if they if, if they get their money back after a long, long time. But they get back continuously. That's Correct. that's like, Yes. But Miles, tell me, it's a global world now. System, banking system or financial systems are so much, you know, move in coordination. India is not much away from it. It's, mm -hmm. it's impacted by everything that happens globally. A lot of Indian students also go outside. A lot of people are here. They want to grow independent, especially financially independent. Now, the amount of loans may not be that high, but the desire to be financially independent is amongst everybody. What are the assets they can? How can they start when they are just starting a job or only having some time in hand, but they want to build up something which will give them financial independence? What are the assets that they can look at? Like you have real estate, but mm -hmm. what are the things that they can look at? You want to find any asset that pays you to own it. So the way that works for me as an investor is that I, I proportion out, well, let's call it a portfolio, the things that I have that, that are my investments. And I, do, I work by the law of saying 80% of everything that I invest in must be to buy something that pays me to own it. Now, that can be anything that you consider falls into that category. Real estate's a great one because you own the real estate, which goes typically up in value, and you get a rent yield, and the rent yield is the focus. But there are other vehicles that will do that. You could buy a vending machine. You could buy you know, a Coke machine or something and put it in the local store and, and share the revenue with the store owner, and then the machine is paying you to own it. Um, you can buy a, what we call dividend stocks. These are stocks on the stock market that pay you a dividend based on the earnings of the company, not just the share value itself. That's another investment. There are many forms of investments that fit this sort of category, but the easiest one is real estate. The problem with the, the real estate is that it costs so much money to buy into it that you must make a deal with a bank. But what I can tell you is that the formula that's worked very well for me is to get uh, very short mortgage loans, like 10 to 15 years, if that is appropriate in your region, and to make the tenant pay the mortgage off for you. So your goal is to put your name on the contract put the property in there, keep the tenants happy and keep the tenants paying rent and recirculate the rent back to pay the property off. If you're doing that over a 10 or 15 year cycle and you begin that at an early age, let's say 25, then by 35 or 40, you are now owning the property freehold and continuing to get the rents. And if you scale, it has to be, be two, three, four properties. Um, all of a sudden, you'll never work another day in your life. 
And that's when you get your freedom back. So you're effectively front-loading your freedom by taking the debt on young. But the most important thing is that you have to have the, the, the human discipline to not want to, t- to take the money early and use it to go and buy the latest phone or use it to go and buy the a big car or whatever. You know, you have the discipline to defend that. If you do that, you will get so much traction already and inertia in this whole world, you will never work another day in your life. But if you, do, if you don't start young and you try and do this later in life, it's harder, obviously, uh, and you want to do it when you're willing to give up your time to make money, but know that that's not a long-term uh, plan. Most people aren't taught that. They're taught the concept of career, and that is a perpetuation of working for somebody in a job. And it doesn't usually end well. And I'm 57. I can tell you at this point in my life, uh, if I had learned this lesson 20, 30 years ago and it enacted it more actively 20, 30 years ago, uh, my life would be very, very different. But I had to try something, watch it fail, lose big time, do it again, pick myself up, dust myself off, do it again, watch it fail again, then pick myself up, dust myself off, do it again. And eventually I got it. But most people haven't got the stomach to go through that. That's 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 why you are a master because you have picked yourself up after, you know, uh, falling falling on the ground and then picking up yourself yourself up. Because anybody else, if, you, if I ask for financial advice or any other, because see, you have not named any financial product here. You have talked about things that will, you know, that are much more practical in nature. Now, if a 17, 18 year old goes out and asks for any advice, mostly it will be the financial products. And that is not what you have named. So no, I yes. So I wanted to have a. That's why you are a contrarian. I wanted to have a contrarian view because an eighteen-year-old will continue to get the normal advice that everybody will give, give him all throughout his uh, financial journey. Now you talked about you know falling down and picking yourself up, and nobody better than you to tell about that. For a youngster, it's very important. Our lives today are so much connected to social media and gadgets and everything else that we actually don't know what falling on the ground is actually in real about. Mm-hmm. You suddenly are in some part of your career and then you face so-called failure. And then you don't know how to deal with that. Right. You faced a mat- massive auto accident you know, in, in Australia in the 90s. You picked yourself uh, yourself up. You pay. You had businesses, big businesses. They did. They worked very well. Then something happened. Then you again built build them up after that. Mm-hmm. Now you there cannot be a better person to tell them to how how to deal with setbacks in life and especially in the in financial financial life as such. Mm-hmm. So your advice that you learned on the you know when you got down and dusted. So to put give you some context to the story, so when I was 25, I left Australia and I moved to the United States. Uh, I didn't expect to, but I got I ended up meeting a girl, I got married, and I ended up living in California. 
Um, about five years during that time, I had a very hard time finding employment because I didn't have any. I didn't even finish high school. I didn't have any degrees, and it wouldn't have mattered anyway because in the United States they wouldn't have recognised it unless it was with a US university. So it wouldn't have made any difference. But I ended up uh, working as a, a. I'm a software technologist by trade. I was one of the very early pioneers in the computer industry. So I became somebody who could write software, and I found myself working for a startup in California uh, that gave me a job, and. Uh, I had no idea what they did. They were a medical company of some sort, but I didn't know anything about this. So I just took a job. And when the job with the package they give you as an incentive to try to get you to want to work for them, they give you these things called stock options, which is the ability, like a, a block of stock that you have the right to buy at a, a very cheap price uh, while you're working for them. It so happened that I got lucky and I ended up working for the what became the world's largest biotech corporation, which was Amgen, and my stock options were worth millions. They're worth a lot of money. So one day I got a phone call back from Australia that my mother had taken ill and I had to return back to Australia. Uh, so my wife and I ended up moving back to Australia. I cashed in all my stock options. I had all this money. I was 32 years old. I thought, wow, I've made it. You know, I'm a, I'm a rock star. I never have to work another day in my life again. Yeah, well, that didn't work because what ended up happening six months later, my wife decided that, you know, she wanted to leave. So we got a divorce and half the money went to that. And then all of my uh, other costs were there paying for a house that I had bought. Um, so ended up losing most of the money. I had a little bit left. And then one day I got asked by some friends of mine if I wanted to go with them on a vacation, on a trip across the outback in a car, which we did. And on the way back, we had a massive car accident. One of my friends was killed in the accident. I was left kind of destroyed in the back seat. Um, and by the time I got out of that car accident with the cost of all of the medical care and hiring lawyers to sue insurance companies and all this sort of rubbish, I was penniless. I was completely broke. So I'd gone from being a hero to zero. But the thing that the thing I had about me was this experience of what life was like being pulled out of a wreckage, still cognizant, still aware of what was going on around me and knowing that I could still use my fingers and I could still use my feet. So I knew that I could pick myself up from this and that, you know, with all the, the negative things that had happened around me and all the bad things and, and losing everything, the whole gamut of it, I was still there, right? I was still kicking. I was still alive and I could pull myself back. So little by little through years of surgeries and years of rehabilitation, I got myself back together again. Five years or so later, I remarried. I ended up moving back to the United States. Uh, I moved back at the time of the dot-com boom which was really good for me being a software guy. I ended up making a lot more money. I invested in real estate. The real estate went crazy up, uh, euphoric gains. Uh, I was back to being a millionaire again, you know, five, six years later. And then all of a sudden the 2008 global financial crisis hit the bankings. They uh, destroyed the market and with that destroyed pretty much everything I had and all of a sudden, I'm back to zero again. And I said, you know, I, this roller coaster ride, <laughs> going from hero to zero like this, it ain't fun. But I remember right after that stock market crash of 2000, uh, the real estate crash of 2008, I was sitting outside with my wife uh, 
we're, we're in Arizona. It was morning. The sun was shining. We we're having a cup of coffee. And I was stressed. I mean, I was really stressed out. And I said to her, you know what? I was almost killed in a car accident and I can get through that. If I can get through that, I can get through anything. And I don't have any, I don't have fear right now because for some reason I can transcend it. And I don't understand why, but I could see beyond that, that this loss of everything was going to be just a bump in the road and I'm not going to treat it anything more than that. We'll get through this. We'll, we'll find a way through it. Meanwhile, all of my friends around me who had never been through any sort of adverse event in their life like this were being foreclosed and losing their home and being kicked out on the street. And it was horrible to see my friends go through all of this. But I said to my wife, you know, there's a lot of very cheap real estate left over from these guys being foreclosed. We should buy some. Uh, we had a little bit of cash, not a huge amount, but enough to be able to pick up a few properties and when everybody else was running out of the burning building that was the economy of 2008, we decided to run in and we bought up all of their uh, foreclosures for 10 cents on the dollar, 10% of their value, because they were just, you know, there were these auctions. They were just trying to get rid of them. The bank wanted to get, they called them toxic assets. I looked at it and go, there's a house for someone to live in. That's not a toxic asset. So we kept buying and buying and buying four or five years later, we were multi-millionaires because the reality of society got back to the fact that, you know, if you ever study things like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that food, shelter, and clothing is a physiological right. need right. we all have. Right. Um, I could see that because I could see things clearly. I could see things clearly because I didn't have a job and I could transcend adversity to see clarity in things. And that, made the difference. That was all it was. And I sort of look and think, well, is that taking advantage of an adversity and coming out the other side stronger for having gone through the process? Or is it just the clarity of thought that you cannot be so attached to the, the perception of personal failure when you had nothing to do with it? I mean, I I couldn't control my divorce. I couldn't control a car accident. I was in the backseat of the car. I wasn't driving it. I couldn't control the global financial crisis of 2008. None of these events were anything that I personally committed to uh, having, right? right? And yet I was the beneficiary of the downside, but I was also the beneficiary of the upside. And the question came down to mental clarity. Can I see past these adversities and find opportunity in that? That lesson, thank God, I got when I was in my 30s. And it's because of that lesson that I feel empowered to be able to go forward in my life knowing that it can never get as bad as it got back then. And look, we're all, we're all biological entities, right? We all were born and we die. We all live in a world of entropy. We will all eventually turn to dust. And whether or not you have a faith belief system that allows you to try to transcend the struggle that comes with that, or you don't, the reality is just uh, obsessing about that, that 75 or 80 year life expectancy that we all have isn't going to help you on a day-to-day -day basis. You have to look at what who you are and what advantages you can bring to the table in the day. And what that means is that you have to live in the moment and you're not ever going to be able to live in the moment looking at your Twitter feed on your phone. I hope that explains it. <laughs>
I don't need to ask anything. You have explained everything uh, in this verse. Adversity is just a uh, what you call a small thing in in, in your bigger journey. And that's it's a it's a learning opportunity. I'll, I'll tell you this: that you will learn more from failure than you ever learn from success. Absolutely, absolutely. You will learn more from failure than you will learn from success. I I can surely agree with that. Uh, with this with this uh, miles, it's a wrap on this edition of the KJ Masterclass. It's a lot of learning from you, not only for others but also for me. I'll sleep with you know I'll sleep this night. With you know, with a lot of this learning with into my head. Thank you very much for your time, indeed. Thank you. Thank very you for much. having me. Thank you. Thank you.